0: All right, guys, welcome to church. Great Sunday to be at church, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel whiplash coming to church, and this is one of those weeks. I remember on Friday night, my son Luke had his eighth birthday party, and what that means is we had 26 second-grade boys at our house, and the way you manage that is you have a Nerf-themed birthday party. So we had this big bucket of Nerf bullets, probably in the thousands, sitting at the entrance to our garage. And these boys would come in and just grab a whole bunch of these Nerf bullets and they'd fill their guns and they just immediately start shooting each other. And there were so many funny moments at the, at the party because you never really wanna stop that party. You just want it to kind of continuously go. So we sort of hang, you know, sang happy birthday, had the cake already cut, The kids are like grabbing the cake, and and so there were kids all around our yard like holding a piece of cake on a plate in one hand with like a Nerf gun under their arm and then an ice cream cone in the other hand who are trying to like shoot each other with their pinky finger of the Nerf gun. But, but one of the funniest moments for me was I was standing in the garage talking to one of the adults, and I look out, and there's just this line, maybe 10 or 12 second grade boys lining the street, shooting, passing cars with their Nerf guns, and so I have this moment where I'm just like, oh no, and, and the anger just like wells up within me, and I just like run out of the garage. And I'm simultaneously like feeling like, I love these guys. I totally would have been doing this too at their age and sort of wishing that I could get away with that. But, and then at the same time, I'm in dad mode. So I'm just like, what are you guys doing? Anyone shoots a car again and this is gonna be the worst birthday party you've ever been to, you know? And the kids are like scattering and running and probably wanting to shoot me with their Nerf guns. But I've got this feeling simultaneously in my heart, right? Like you idiots and I love you guys, And that's actually what we see in this passage. You know, in different commentaries I read, there's translators who translate these first couple verses here, you know, where he says, oh, foolish Galatians, they, they translate it, you dear idiots, or you beloved morons. And we're immediately drawn in, like, what is Paul, the apostle, incensed about? Why is he so bothered And the answer is that he loves these people so much that he is frustrated that they have abandoned their faith. See, the point of this section is that the whole Christian life is by faith. You can't earn God's favor. You can't religiously perform into relationship with God You simply believe what he's promised. You take God at his word. When God says something, you believe it, you receive the gospel that he's preached to us. So here's what we're gonna look at this morning. We're gonna look at three truths that help beloved morons to walk by faith. The first one is we receive the spirit by faith. So let's just read these first four verses again. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, so what you see in this passage is this repeated phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And throughout the entire 14 verses that we're going to look at today, that's the theme, that the Christian life from beginning to end is by faith. In fact, in those 14 verses, the word faith or believe is listed 10 times. Times So Paul is exasperated by the Galatians because they have abandoned their faith and they are instead of relying on the spirit of God, they are relying on their own religious performance. Here's the basic question of this section, verse two. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith. So here's what he's reminding them of. He's reminding them of their beginnings. And so what happened is Paul came into Galatia to plant a church there and he preached the good news about Jesus to them. So the text says that Jesus was publicly portrayed before their eyes as crucified. Now, it doesn't mean literally, because Galatia is in modern-day Turkey, which is a long way from Jerusalem, where Jesus was actually crucified. So what Paul is saying is, I so vividly preached the truth about Jesus that you were able to see your sin in light of his grace And you were able to believe that Jesus was your personal savior. And in placing your faith in Jesus, you received the Holy Spirit. So see, what Paul taught is not that receiving the Holy Spirit was a second act of God's grace, but when you believe in Jesus, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And what the Holy Spirit does when he comes to live inside of you is he begins to clean you up from the inside out. And so what happens is it's not by your own effort that you're cleaned up, it's the spirit working inside of you and prompting you to change your life. So Christianity is fundamentally an inside out religion. But what the false teachers were teaching in that day is not that Jesus wasn't the savior and not that the Holy Spirit wasn't necessary for salvation. What they were teaching is, since you've believed in Jesus, what you now need to do is clean up your life so that the Holy Spirit would be activated in your life. See, it's a problem with order. They're saying for the Holy Spirit to really be active in your life, you need to clean up your life first. But here's what Paul's saying. You idiots! You know that's impossible. Have you ever tried to clean up your life on your own? Have you ever tried to obey the 10 commandments? Have you ever tried to be good? It's not just hard, it's impossible. And you will spiritually shipwreck your life and live in a depressed, defeatist state if you try to attack cleaning up your own life by your own power. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, guys, remember, remember, You received the Spirit at the beginning simply by believing. And you receive the Spirit each and every day to help clean up your life by simply believing. You can't do this on your own. Guys, it's kind of like when I bought my house in Minnesota. The only reason we could afford the house is because the front yard was absolutely covered in rocks. The person who lived there before us thought it was a good idea since they couldn't get grass to grow there in order to sell the house to put five inches of rock in the entire front yard. And I'm not talking about little pebbles. I'm talking about big, huge rocks. And so we knew we wanted to clean up the front yard, get rid of the rocks. So I went out there just to sort of test the ground to see if I would be able to do this work on myself. And so I just took a regular like spade shovel and a bucket. And I was like, okay, how much rock can I get up in the next few minutes? Let's see if this is gonna be worth it. And it took me three seconds to figure out this was not a doable project. Because I took that shovel and I tried to slam it into the rocks and I just got like, my, my body became a shock absorber. And the, my arms are just like shaking back and forth because the rocks are so hard. The shovel didn't even penetrate the rocks. And so what I had to do is instead of picking up the rocks by works, I had to do it by faith. And so the way that I did that is I called somebody who knew how to do it. I put my trust somewhere else, in somebody else. And so what I ended up doing is put my trust in somebody who had access to a 25-yard dumpster, a skid loader, and four gentlemen who were much stronger than I am. And they came out there, and it took them four days to clear my front yard of these rocks, See, what was impossible for me to do by my own effort was only possible for me to do by faith in someone else. And similarly, the Christian life from the beginning to the end is not possible in your own moral effort. It is only possible by faith, in this case, in the Holy Spirit. And so the good news is, if you're a Christian, if you've believed in Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And to activate his power in your life is not about first cleaning up your life. I gotta get all my disciplines in order. I gotta make sure that I'm reading my Bible every day, saying my prayers three times a day, visiting or making a pilgrimage to the specific religious holy place. No, it's not about that. It's simply by believing Resting your hope on the promise. And as you rest your hope on the promise and the presence of the Holy Spirit, he transforms your life from the inside out. Yes, there's gonna be some effort involved on your part, but it's gonna be the effort of working alongside and in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, not in trying to impress God with how moral and upright you are. Now I said, that Paul's primary contention and argument is with some false teachers called the Judaizers. And so there's a very important line of reasoning that he gets into next that has to do with the Jewish heritage of the people of God. And so the next argument that he makes is that Abraham, sort of the father of the Christian faith, was blessed by faith. In other words, Abraham didn't earn his way to God by being a good guy, but he trusted in God's promise. So here's what Paul says next, starting with verse six. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are, Who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, this text is just as important in our day as it was in Paul's day because there are many people in the world who get this text wrong about Abraham. And because they get this text wrong, they are living their lives apart from God. There are approximately 4.4 billion people in the world who trace their spiritual heritage to Abraham. I'm talking about Muslims, I'm talking about Jews, and I'm talking about Christians. And those people who trace their, their spiritual lineage to Abraham believe one of two things about that. There's a group of people who believe that you can earn your status with God because Abraham earned his status with God. And there are explicitly two billion of those four and a half billion people who believe that. I'm talking about Jews and Muslims. And then of Christians, there's sort of this divide between people who really, truly believe the gospel and those who don't believe the gospel. And so let's just Take that number, the remaining two and a half billion, and let's cut it in half and say a billion people believe the truth about this passage. And let's just say the other three and a half billion believe a lie about this passage. And this is really important because what Paul is saying here in Scripture is that there's only one way to be a son of Abraham, and it's not by your ethnic heritage and it's not by your works. It's by faith, and here's how his argument goes. He starts with Abraham, and he actually starts in Genesis 15, verse six, and he quotes this passage from Genesis 15, verse six, that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. So in other words, Abraham was not a good guy who did good religious things, and that's why God blessed his life. Abraham took God at his word. That's the other passage that Paul references here, which is Genesis 12. And, and he says there, from Genesis chapter 12, verse three, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And what we're reminded of in that is how God approached Abraham. Abraham. So Abraham was living out in the middle of nowhere. He was a nobody. He had no association with God. And God showed up to him and gave him a promise. And he told him that everyone on earth, all nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. Paul takes it even further. And he says that Abraham's faith was not some vague faith in a vague God, but his faith was actually in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham was able to see by the promise that God had given him, that God would send a rescuer to rescue him from his sin. Now he didn't know the exact name of that rescuer, he didn't exactly know what he would be like. He didn't know nearly as much about Jesus as we do, but he saw him by faith. That's what Paul's saying here, that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And it's not just Paul who says this, Jesus actually says this as well. In John chapter eight, verses 56 through 58, it says this, your father Abraham, this is Jesus speaking, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, Abraham had a conversation with me. When Jesus says, I am, he's saying, I am God. And Abraham was by faith able to see Jesus' day when the Savior of the world would walk on the earth, walk toward the cross to die for the sins of his people. And so this gives us a lens on how we read the entire Old Testament. We don't see good people doing good things for God and earning their way into relationship with him. What we actually see is messed up, crazy people believing a God who makes amazing promises to them, taking him at his word and their lives being flipped upside down by his grace. Do you know just after that passage where God approaches Abraham and tells him, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Just a paragraph later, Abraham gets so scared that he tells a king that Sarah is his sister and lies, hiding behind his wife so as not to be exposed or persecuted or hurt. So we see Abraham lie we actually see him not take God at his word by sleeping with another woman because he doesn't think that his wife will ever get pregnant, even though that's what God has promised to him. And in the midst of all that, we also see tremendous faith that results in action in Abraham's life. Like when God tells him to kill his only son and he doesn't know what the outcome of that is, he listens. But here's the reality of the life of Abraham. It's not a good guy doing good things to earn God's favor. It is a man who is messed up, just like we are a sinner, who is believing that God is good on his word. Think about how believing promises changes our life. Guys, I was just watching one of my favorite movies um, called October Sky. You guys remember October Sky? It's about these group of guys who are living in Colwood, West Virginia, and sort of their fate that's been handed to them is that they're gonna work in these coal mines. But they have this teacher named Miss Riley, and Miss Riley believes that they actually have minds for science. And so they begin to sort of believe that promise, and they they start building rockets. And at first, the rockets aren't, aren't doing very well, but eventually they're they're shooting off rockets and they believe that they can actually win the science fair. And the main character, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, um, Homer Hickam, actually comes to believe that one day he could be an astronaut, that he could work for NASA. And everybody around him is like, you're crazy, that's nuts. There's no way that you could ever do that. But Miss Riley's always in his ear too, like, no, you can do this, I see it. I promise you, if you put the work in, you can do this. You gotta believe the promise. And you just see him continually to move forward. And then at the end of the movie, the, the credits are sort of rolling and you find out that this is a true story and that Homer Hickam, in fact, did get out of Colwood, West Virginia. And then he did, in fact, work for NASA and, and is shooting people into space. But here's the thing, if you just go and you try to like be an amateur rocket builder and work your way to NASA without believing that it's actually possible, your work will be stunted in the process. And so what we tend to do is we tend to look at Abraham or other Old Testament figures, and we're like, man, those guys did some amazing things. And what we do is we just go out and we can try to emulate their behavior. We try to be like them. But what Paul's saying is you can't forget what fueled their behavior. They believed the promises of God. And some of you, you sit here this morning and you feel hopeless and you feel defeated in your Christian life because you're sort of looking at God's moral code or you're looking at the example of people in the Bible and you're just trying to go out and do it. And what you need this morning is for God to put his arm around you and to tell you to look up at the stars like he did with Abraham. And to hear you say, through you, I wanna bless the whole world. I wanna use that little seed of faith that is inside of you. And if you will connect yourself instead of to your own resources, but to the resources of God, I actually wanna change the world through you. It's not about how capable you are, it's about how capable God is. And imagine if all of us would sort of get our eyes off of ourselves and we would get our eyes onto God. And like Abraham, we would believe. It says in in scripture that in hope, he believed against hope. Everything was against him. He's an old man. His wife is barren. And God makes this promise to him that his descendants are gonna be like the sand of the seashore or like the stars in the sky. And all Abraham brought to the table was faith. He took God at his word. He believed. He said yes to the promise of God. And so what I'm not asking you to do is work harder or put more effort in. That effort will come, but the effort will come by faith. When your heart is set on fire by the promise of God, and that's gotta start with you reading the Old Testament, not like a Muslim or like a Jew or like a believer who doesn't believe the gospel, but like a Christian. And you've got to see that from beginning to end, The people that God blesses, he blesses by faith. But today, guys, we have an even more clear picture of what that faith looks like than even Abraham did. Because that Messiah, that Jesus, has come. And we know that we are justified, we are made right with God by faith in him. So look how Paul continues to encourage us to walk by faith. Starting with verse 10, going to verse 14, he says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, <clears throat> the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So here's what Paul's saying. The problem for Christians is not that we want to do works of the law. Doing works of the law is a noble thing. The problem is when we begin to rely on works of the law. And Paul grounds his objection to this in the Old Testament. And he quotes Moses first from Deuteronomy chapter 27. And he says, cursed is anyone who does not put these things into practice. And so here's the problem. From Deuteronomy chapter four to Deuteronomy chapter 27, Moses lists all of these laws, law after law after law, including the 10 commandments and many other subsequent laws. And he says, if you don't do all of these things, not intend on do them, but actually carry them out in the practice of your life, you will be cursed. And so what we're supposed to do when we hear that is we're supposed to examine our own lives and we're supposed to see that we, apart from Christ, are under a curse. And so what we do, if we're under this curse, is we can have these stints of time where we try to obey God's revealed moral law and we go after it, but then we say stuff like this, like, I just keep beating myself up or I can't forgive myself for the way that I'm breaking these commandments. And the reason for that is because you know deep down in your heart that you are guilty. And not like vaguely guilty, but guilty before God Almighty, because what God requires of us is actually perfection. And that's why it's so important that we listen to the connection that Paul is making next. So he also grabs another passage from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which says this Everyone who is hanged on a tree is under God's curse. So here's what happened in the Old Testament. When Israel would attack and defeat a neighboring nation, they would kill everybody except for the king. And what they would do with the king is they would hang the king up on a tree. And what that meant is that the people whom they had defeated were cursed. They would hang him up there, sometimes for three or four days impaled on a tree. And that meant the people were cursed. And what Paul does is he grabs this Old Testament language, these Old Testament stories, and he applies it to Christ. And he says at the end of this passage, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, Jesus was hung on a tree, on the cross. And what was happening at the cross is that Jesus was being cursed by God. Even though Jesus had never done anything wrong, even though he had never sinned, even though he had never fallen short of the glory of God, he is being cursed by God because everyone who is who hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And Paul's saying, the meaning of that is that Jesus was being cursed for your law-breaking because you couldn't live up to Deuteronomy chapter four through Deuteronomy chapter 27. Through your own moral efforts, you could not make yourself right with God. And so what Jesus came to do is he came to justify you. That is, to take the guilt of your sin on himself and to give you his perfect moral record so that when God sees you, he sees the perfection of Jesus. And so there's no need for you to beat yourself up. You're not under a curse and you have a new lens for interpreting the circumstances of your life. Here's what happens. Some of you, instead of interpreting your life through the cross, are interpreting your life through your circumstances. And so whenever anything bad happens to you, you feel like you are being punished by God, which is why this passage is incredibly practical. Guys, you know, my wife Melissa and I have been through some incredibly trying circumstances over the past few years. And I remember having this sort of theological dialogue with myself as my son, my five-month-old son, Jude, was literally dying in the room. Because here's what, here's what Satan, my flesh, is screaming at me in that moment. The reason that this really bad thing, this awful thing, this terrible thing, is happening in your life is because you did something wrong. It's because of your sin. Look at all the ways that you have broken God's law. Look at all the ways you've sinned, look at all the ways you've messed up. Now, you've had it coming to you and this is the punishment. You lose your son. That's 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 one voice, right? And in that moment, this is the way I'm doing battle. No. Jesus was cursed for me. This is not a curse. God is working out all things for good because I love him. Jesus took the punishment for my sin. My circumstance is not a curse, but is actually the avenue of God's blessing. And I don't even understand what that means necessarily, but I know that all of my sin, past, present, and future, was placed on Jesus. And so, what I can do in that moment is I can raise my hands to Jesus. And I can say, even though I don't understand, thank you, because I trust that what you are doing in my life is actually what is best. So the cross is not just something that we look back on and say thank you to God for, it is actually meant to be the lens through which you see your entire life. And what you need to hear this morning is the shame is off of you, the curse is off of you, the guilt is off of you. God is for you. Scripture says, he did, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the cross. How will he also not with him graciously give you all things? Settle that in your heart right now. God is for you. No matter what happens in your life, he loves you because the curse was placed on Jesus. So your life is a blessing. That's how you live by faith. You connect yourself to that. And so here's the way I wanna end. I don't wanna end with a practical application. I wanna end with graphically portraying Jesus Christ before your eyes is crucified. I want you to, to see Jesus. Look at him right now with eyes of faith. He's hanging on the cross, with nail-pierced hands, with a nail driven in his feet. See him there. He is bearing the curse for you. Look at his eyes. He's not mad. There are tears in his eyes. He's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he's saying to you, He's saying, it is finished. Live in light of this reality. Live by God's spirit. Accept the blessing of God by faith. Look at the stars. Enjoy your life. Let's pray. Jesus, I just wanna say thank you Thank you that the cross is the measure of your love. That we don't have to earn or deserve or religiously perform our way into your favor, but we can have it as a free gift. I just pray for that person in the the crowd right now who is just, they're wrestling. They're just like, man, I haven't done enough. I can never deserve this. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, for that aha moment where you would say, yeah, exactly. That's, that's the whole thing, that, that we haven't earned it, that we can't deserve it, that it's by sheer grace. God, would that be the anthem of our lives, that we've been saved, not, not by our own efforts, but by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.